from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 24, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian Churchill, and i'm nathan marchand in this episode we will be covering the 1991 film godzilla versus king Ghidorah. oh boy <laughs> this is one that i have been looking forward to and kind of dreading all at the same time it is one of the highest rated films in the entire franchise, according to that movie database. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, this is definitely one I think probably everybody has an opinion on one way or the other. Yeah. This, I think it's the most memorable one of all these Heisei movies, actually. For this episode, I think both of us have our share of funny things to talk about in this movie. I think there are plenty of opportunities for a lot of uh, lightheartedness. I think this, this episode is going to be one of those. Our related topics for this episode are nationalism and the U.S.-Japan difficulties reaching a peak regarding trade and market penetration. We'll start with part one. Uh, Take it away, Nate. I hope this doesn't kill me. (laughs) We spent a lot of time cutting this down. I'm actually proud of this. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. As a dinosaur, Godzilla defends his island territory from American soldiers. As a kaiju, he is an aggressive force of nature. While some characters see him as a defender of humanity, this proves to be inaccurate. King Ghidorah is a bioweapon from the 23rd century controlled by the Futurians. He begins as three cute creatures called Dorats that fuse together after absorbing radiation from the Castle Bravo nuclear test. As Mecha King Ghidorah, he's piloted by Emi to defend Japan against Godzilla. Reporter Kenichiro Terasawa, psychic Miki Sagusa, and Professor Mazaki are three civilians chosen by the Futurians to accompany them to 1944 to find the Godzillasaurus. Yasuaki Shindo, the well-meaning head of the Teo Corporation, advocates for Godzilla as Japan's defender since he was saved by the Godzillasaurus while serving in the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II. Emi Kano is a Japanese woman from the future who wants to protect her home country from all threats. M11 is an obedient android. Chuck Wilson and Grenchiko are deceptive time terrorists determined to destroy Japan before it becomes a superpower in the 23rd century. The human and kaiju plotlines have a high intermix. While at first the film focuses on the Futurians, their evil plan revolves around the kaiju, so the heroes must combat the kaiju by combating them. In order to solve the problem of Ghidorah, the Teo Corporation deploys a nuclear submarine to resuscitate Godzilla, but he destroys the sub, growing larger. Emi, Terasawa, and M11 destroy the Futurian computers to disrupt their control of Ghidorah. Godzilla becomes the problem after he kills Ghidorah and leaves him at the bottom of the ocean. Finally, Emi revives Ghidorah as a cyborg in the future and travels back in time to halt Godzilla's attack. Mecha Ghidorah uses giant mechanical claws to carry Godzilla away, but Godzilla blasts the cyborg and they fall into the ocean. Like with the previous film, the script by writer-director Kazuki Omori is a complicated, overstuffed story with many characters and plot elements. The film had a budget of 1.5 billion yen, 
which is approximately $12 million. Koichi Kawakita utilized traditional tokusatsu techniques, including suitmation, miniatures, animations, and puppetry. The Godzilla-saurus suit was designed to look more paleontologically accurate. King Ghidorah was redesigned slightly with crowns of horns. Some of the many rotoscope shots look better than others. The sci-fi vehicles, clearly inspired by 80s American films, were designed and implemented pretty well. This film has an intentionally lighter tone compared to the previous Heisei Godzilla movies, but it takes itself quite seriously. Even with all the sci-fi tropes and concepts, this remains a fantasy film. This is the first and only Godzilla movie to feature time travel and World War II. It delves into Godzilla's origin, showing what had previously only been theories. Changing the iconic King Ghidorah's origin and resurrecting him as a cyborg were bold moves. The film reinforces the style of Godzilla vs. Biollante with beam-heavy kaiju battles, continuity, recurring characters, sci-fi trappings, and unsubtle symbolism, among other things. It also reinforces the style of Invasion of Astro Monster by having Ghidorah be controlled by invaders. Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka sought to revitalize the floundering Heisei series by bringing back other classic monsters. The film's new producer, Shoko Tomoyama, thought Biollante was too sophisticated for children, so he wanted to return to the fantasy of the Showa series. Omori thought the 1989 film underperformed because of competition with Back to the Future Part 2, so he added time travel to the story. They intended to attract longtime Godzilla fans who weren't watching the new films. When released in Japan December 14, 1991, it grossed 1.45 billion yen, or $11 million, with an attendance of 2.7 million. Toho's international version was released on VHS and DVD by TriStar Pictures in 1998. While generally liked by fans, some take issue with the film's time travel plot and changing Ghidorah's origin. The only edits made by TriStar were on-screen text and changing the end credits. There are many forces at play in this story. The movie messes around with the zeitgeist of nationalism in Japan, with the Futurian saying Japan will become the world's most powerful country by the 23rd century. Grenchiko and Wilson's utilization of time travel to wipe Godzilla from history and create King Ghidorah demonstrates the danger of such technology. Shindo's company builds its own nuclear-powered submarine but keeps it outside of Japanese waters to avoid breaking laws. In World War II, the U.S. Navy attacks an island controlled by a Japanese garrison, which for some reopened discussion of those events. Like previous movies in the Godzilla series, it demonstrates how post-war prosperity and growth, led by Shindo, can be destroyed in the blink of an eye. One of Shindo's squad mates protests at a museum saying the dinosaur that saved him would destroy them if they didn't change their ways. Issues regarding Japanese nationalism pervade the film. Though there doesn't seem to be a specific theme, the film is definitely pro-Japanese. The film also echoes Invasion of Astro Monster's thematic element of not trusting outsiders. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Thankfully, I survived to see part two of the podcast. Let me check my pulse real quick. Yep, I'm still here. So part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film at hand. Although to help us out with that, I brought a little friend with me. If you could see the hypothetical video feed for this podcast, you would see I have brought my old Trendmasters Mecha King Ghidorah action figure. I couldn't resist. <laughs> but uh, so Brian... Thoughts on this movie? <laughs> Overall, I I like it, but in a almost mystery science theater kind of way, 
I, I when I watch this movie, I usually watch it with the English dub on, and I think it's because that's a guilty pleasure just for this movie. But I overall, I I it's not boring. And out of the Heisei movies, I pro, I watch this one maybe more often than any of the other Heisei movies besides Return of Godzilla, probably. The reason I I joked at the beginning that I had been looking forward to this while also kind of dreading it is because this is the film for which my opinion, especially since you and I started planning this podcast, I think for both of us, I think this is the one that our opinions have fluctuated the most. I was wondering if it was going to be a lot of ranting and criticism, which we're going to avoid doing, but uh, I saw this one for the first time when I was about 16 when TriStar released it, finally. It was one that I had been made aware of uh, beforehand, but I never thought I would get a chance to see. And it's on paper, it sounded interesting. But even when I was a teen, there were always things about the movie that I had difficulty swallowing. and I But I had a hard time figuring out what those were. So to answer your question, I wish I liked it more. It would be the best way to put it. When I first saw this, it was on it was on television and it was in the late 90s. However, I started watching it at the beginning of the part where they show 1992 AD and that's when Godzilla starts attacking Tokyo. And so that was my That's really late. Yes. And so imagine all of my all of the questions that were going through my head. This is not a movie you want to start late. <laughs> and so then Mecha King Ghidorah shows up, and I'm like, what in the... And what are these people talking about with all this time travel stuff? This is interesting, and yet annoying at the same time. See, I was aware of Mecha King Ghidorah because of the Trendmasters action figures. Yeah, I didn't even nice know... Looking. Yeah, I didn't even know that these movies existed so when I started watching the Showa movies, the whole uh, every time I see Ghidorah show up, I keep thinking, where does the cyborg come from? I'm waiting for the cyborg. And then I find out later, oh, there were more movies. That's where it's from. So the way that we'll tackle this is we'll start with things that we liked. And then by the end of this journey, we'll get to all the stuff that we think was funny or amusing <laughs> in various ways. I think this will be fun. Mm-hmm. So, stuff that we liked. Hopefully this takes longer than the other parts. <laughs> I'm, not op- I'm not optimistic, though. A lot, a lot of people like this, though. And, I'm and we'll, little, talk, we'll talk about that, yeah, too. Yeah, I'm a little confused by that. I, well, I don't, I don't hate it. It's definitely amusing. It's definitely a lot of stuff happens. This has, this has more stuff happen in it than in Biolante. I did enjoy hearing Ifuka Bay again. Yeah, that was nice. It was a little, even though this isn't the first time I've watched the movie, watching them in order, knowing what I know now, it was a little bit weird at first because the music in the previous two Heisei movies was very different. Yeah, no more video game music. I, I'm sure from the studio's perspective, bringing Afuka Bay back was a smart move because they're hoping to get the, the longtime fans to come back. They're going back for the classics. Mm-hmm. Although the, it's just odd. It seemed a little bit weird for me at first hearing this Afukabe music, which I so strongly associate with the Showa series, but yet I can go see Force Awakens and hear John Williams and it doesn't seem weird. Yeah, I don't I didn't find this music weird. 
I don't know. Maybe it's just a thing just th- that just happened to me with this most recent viewing. But it was nice. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of recognizable themes that get brought back. The the opening credit sequence, the music yeah. in that harkens back to the to the the music that w- that he composed for Destroy All Monsters when our heroes are destroying the control device and things like that. So right. There's a lot of it's. I think the intention was to uh, ease people in with some familiarity. And there, I like the return of Ghidorah. I like this design for Ghidorah. I don't know about you, but I personally, I think in terms of design, this is probably my favorite version of Ghidorah. For me, it's Showa, but this isn't bad. I still like it. I, I think bringing back the monster was one reason why this movie is so popular. And also, Biolante was pretty weird, and so we, yes. this is this is us getting snapped back into more um, familiar territory. The idea of Ghidorah being a genetically engineered bioweapon from the future, in concept, I can get behind. I think it's a really interesting variation of what we had before. Since all this genetic stuff's going on at the time, it makes a little bit more sense. But uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I prefer Space Monster. Space Monster is a, is a cleaner easier origin but it's just more classic yeah but like i said it works like i said in in concept i appreciate it Mm -hmm. one thing i liked was how this movie does mess around with the zeitgeist of nationalism all at the time when japan was going through a very 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 interesting time in its history maybe one of the most interesting times in its post-war history for sure one thing I will compliment the the special effects with uh, involved with Ghidorah for this film is that the heads look a little bit more coordinated this time around. Whereas a lot of times in the 60s movies, they just looked like they were just kind of flop. In this one, they very much look like they're in sync with each other. They look in the the same directions a little bit more. They look a little bit more coordinated. So I really appreciated that, particularly when Ghidorah's flying. I like the opening scene in this movie because it, it it's, tells us we're in the future, which is interesting. It's underwater, and the first glimpse we get of Ghidorah is his corpse. We don't know what the heck has happened. And there's a head missing. And, and there's a that. head yeah. missing. And then Emmy, but we don't know who she is yet, says, this is Ghidorah. He fought Godzilla in the 20th century, and she's talking to another character. So it's setting up a lot of things. It's setting up intrigues. So you're, the audience is wondering, how did... Ghidorah get here what happened and then the opening credits start and it goes back to 1992 so I think it's a great way to open it up it's almost like a one minute long or so intro scene before the titles start I think you need at least that long in order to lead us into the script for this which is uh, approximately a ream of paper I like the the Futurian ship their little UFO looking thing Mm. I think it looks pretty cool. It's a nice design. Mm. I like the moving parts and the lights. Obviously, you don't. <laughs> yeah. It looks pretty, I guess. It looks like a Christmas ornament. Hey, that'd be a wonderful Christmas you know, you know, ornament. Like a little spinning Christmas ornament with an LED light inside it. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I don't know if it's mentioned in the movie, but I think the name of that ship is Mother. <laughs> and and the smaller ship that flies around that looks like looks like the the airships from Terminator. I it's, thought it, was, it looked more like a Klingon bird of prey. Uh, either way, but the the smaller ship is called Kids. 
And these are all in capital letters from what I was seeing online as if they're acronyms. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, obviously, I like Shindo, the character, and I love Yoshio Tsuchiya. He's great. This is that's I think that's another reason maybe why this movie is rated high. He's probably the best character and actor in the movie. It's almost like it's a different movie when he's in it. Yeah, I feel like when he's on and when they're when they're when Shindo is in the story, it feels elevated. And maybe well, it that's also Tsuchiya, makes me, it's it's, a, it's like a safe place for me to run to when the, when the rest of this movie is unfolding before us. And like the scenes with him, they make sense mm-hmm. more. <laughs> yeah. So, and Shindo has the most interest, actually has an arc and yeah. has an interesting arc. Yeah. It, it, like the, the ending of the movie, that little um, mini soliloquy that he does, it, that's, and then the, the, the part where, you know, he gets vaporized, all that stuff leading up to him getting vaporized. It's really good. That, that's possibly my favorite part of the movie. I'm also really fond of the scene in World War II when he's telling the Godzillasaurus thank you right before he leads his troops out. Yeah. And he salutes and he's got a tear rolling down his eye. It's he's uh-huh. he's that's some excellent acting there. It's some very good sentiment being expressed there. And I, I really enjoyed that. The music that went with that scene was good, too. In the, you could have played it up for laughs. You could have just made it cheesy, but Suchia keeps it from being that. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The movie is like serious and not cheesy when when he's doing that, and and also at at the end, especially when he's on the phone. There, that's one of the best parts too. It's, it's, I don't think that's cheesy at all. I'm also really fond of Robert Scott Field in this movie. He is a really cool guy. It is a breath of fresh air too in the in the movie for the most part too when he's in it. It's yeah. funny, charming, I think would be the word. Yeah. Uh, he's M11, the android and it's M11 doesn't necessarily ooze personality, although there were points where I swear he had been watching Brent Spiner from Next Gen playing Data because there this seemed like he had some kind of Data moments there. But uh, his Japanese is great. Yeah. And yeah, we, we had the, we like everyone else got to meet him at G fest and talk to him about his experiences working on the movie and living in Japan and all of that. And then and, I went, yeah, I went to his panel that he did yeah, living in Japan. Yeah. He is super cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely super cool. And he's always very happy to talk about working on this movie. And we learned some very interesting things from him about this film. He even was a good sport when I told him, you know, when I asked him, did anyone tell you when you were in, when uh, you got the offer to be in this movie that you were essentially going to be low rent Terminator? <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, I didn't care. <laughs> so our two Western actors playing our villains, they actually speak pretty good Japanese. I as say. far as I can tell. Yeah. I don't think they were dubbed over or anything. No, they weren't. So it was them. Kudos to you guys. You and Robert Scott Field. Now, interestingly, it takes us 70 minutes, 70 minutes in a 100 minute or so movie to get to a kaiju fight. Is that a like? Well, that's kind of my lead in. I'm not I'm not (laughs) critical of it. (laughs) 
I just, but anyway, and I I do enjoy the kaiju fights in this. There's decidedly a bit more special effects and beams going on, but we do get some grappling in this. Godzilla comes up behind Ghidorah like he did in the 60s movies and grabs his two tails and body slams him a couple of times, which is nice. One of the most remembered images in the movie, Ghidorah comes over and starts coiling his neck around Godzilla's neck like Mm -hmm. he's a snake Uh and tries to strangle him. He even gets Godzilla to foam at the mouth. Yeah. That was a little bit nasty. And then Godzilla responds with his own bit of nastiness by shooting him point blank with his atomic breath Mm -hmm. and decapitating one of those heads. Wow. Yeah. And then he falls into the ocean. The first time. <laughs> Which we're revisiting that theme now. Yep, we're revisiting that. Another timestamp important is that the first time that Gita appears is 44 minutes into the film. About halfway. More, actually, a little bit less than halfway. The But then we get a, a bit of a different kaiju fight at the end. Because the first one takes place in an open area. And then the last one is in the middle of a city. The model work w- looks pretty decent. And... Ghidorah's flying around, Mecha Ghidorah, I should say, is flying around the buildings and shooting at Godzilla, and then occasionally does come down, and they get into a little bit of a tussle at that point, and using the the giant claw that pops out of his chest, that was kind of interesting, so that was unexpected, that was different, so I give them credit, they, they were working hard at those battles. It's the... Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building. And I guess when it it finally gets destroyed in the movie, then the crowds cheered because it symbolized taxes. And so it and so people were cheering when that building was destroyed. Oh, kind of like what happened in the in the original film when the diet building when the diet building got yeah. destroyed, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. They also brought back the uh, UFO expert Yes, that, but a, I missed the nice guy. Nod to I know, the previous, but I uh, asked for an Aster Monster. I, I think I still prefer the UFO Club guy from '64. <laughs> he was more entertaining. It's hard to outdo the him and his him, him and his little model from uh, Battle in Outer Space. <laughs> it is, with him too. And, I, and how he just interjects and says, "Well, what you what really yeah, happened? Yeah, the, was, fam- the Family Guy <laughs> yeah. cutaway thing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just it's really hard to top that." So, Brian, did you have any flashbacks to Monster Zero during the opening credit sequence when the UFO appears and everyone is reacting to it? Because I kind of did. I did. So I thought that was a nice way to, again, introduce the film with a bit of familiarity. Oh, and uh, another thing about the climactic kaiju battle, I love Godzilla's reaction when Mecha Ghidorah gets back up after he knocks him out of the sky. Because he did not see that coming. Oh, yeah. And it was a it was a nice bit of suitmation acting. You're really seeing Satsuma, along with the operators for the animatronics in the suit, really working in tandem to communicate that shock. And that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. It, it does look good. And Which is something I, I do want to throw out there. Once again, nice job, Satsuma. <laughs> You once again, you've given us another good performance in that suit. It's no wonder that you keep getting used in all of these Heisei movies. 
say what you want about the movies as a whole, but I can't fault Satsuma in the role of Godzilla. Yeah, it is a good job. And as I have remarked before with uh, with these Heisei movies, I do appreciate the fact, and the, the Showa era did this to a certain extent too, I think I always am impressed when they find clever ways with the editing to switch between footage of actual military vehicles and the models to help create the illusion that it's all one thing. And they do the same thing in this because there's a sequence where Ghidorah fights some fighter jets and they use footage of actual fighter jets and their models. And I thought the editing during that sequence was actually pretty well done. Yeah, I think so. It, it, it didn't seem jarring when, when they were going in between those things. Next, we're going to try to tackle things that we don't really understand, so we're not even going to try to explain, but they're just things that are incongruous that if you start to analyze them, your brain might explode. So let's uh, try to cover things like that. What is the deal with that other woman that works with our author guy? She calls him, and then she she leaves a voicemail message asking him to marry her. I did you catch that? I did, and I I don't get it. And he seems to be I don't know if he's disinterested or if he's just messing with her. I I, I don't get it. <laughs> is it like workplace inappropriate workplace banter that's not at work? Or is it? I, I, what's another one? The, oh, yeah. The, this uh, this guy that says, I'm the Peter Arnett of Japan. And then he goes into a building and then the building collapses on him and kills him. Yeah. Why introduce these guys? Because he's a TV reporter and has two cameramen, I think, with him. And then they just die two minutes later. And he's getting overzealous about covering Godzilla because he's the Peter Arnett of Japan. I, I don't know. Why are there characters who subtly seem to think Godzilla has ever been friendly toward them? Because there's talk of that. Right, the new mean Godzilla. Yeah. The the old one wasn't mean? Or this one's extra mean? I don't know. (laughs) They're like, this this one is unfriendly. (laughs) And it's like, what? When was he ever friendly? Did you forget the other movies? Maybe they're taking the like the first Mecha Godzilla movie into account, and it's like they think about Hero Godzilla. <laughs> but I don't think they are, and that's why it's confusing. Oh well. So at the beginning, they decide to blow up a few military helicopters to just get their get everybody's attention. I guess that's the reason why they blow them. <laughs> And like it's the guy with the the official military southern accent, and, and then he just gets he probably blown had up. It, he probably had it coming. And then like it's like, what are you? What? That's how you say hello? Why is that in there? It's just confusing. Or in this one, Godzilla can magically make himself grow by absorbing other radiation from subs and all of that. But that never happened before. Um, okay, pick one or the other. <laughs> there are several instances where people make comments about how things like psychics and dinosaurs are unusual and Terasawa even tells uh, the woman we were talking about before on the phone that he doesn't write fiction. I'm pretty sure the 
last couple of movies have established that dinosaurs and psychics are well-established parts of this world. So it seems like Terasawa and some of these other characters live in reality while everyone else is in fantasy world. Yeah, they're set in fantasy world. And so what's this guy talking about? Yeah. It's like, okay, you live in fantasy world. There's, there's Godzilla is well-established, all this other stuff. It's everywhere. And yet... He's like, no, I want to write nonfiction, and it ends up being about the same thing. Yeah. Because that's what the reality is. Yeah. It's odd. It's weird how, how so many things are, are trying to be realistic, and yet there's fantasy just right in, the, in your face. My favorite part of the whole thing is someone says, referring to dinosaurs, never seen a live one. Then what's Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that is is yet another one of those huh moments when you're when you're watching this movie. <laughs> I don't know what the deal is with them giving the Japanese a computer. I don't, I don't know about I've that. I've seen either. this movie like fifty times. The only thing I can think of is that it's supposed to harken back to the Zillions. With them offering the cancer cure, but it's never really explained what the special computer is supposed to do. And no, you, it's not. They don't say the reason. And they? you could have done that with one or two lines. You could say, here's a computer from our time period. It's more advanced than anything you have. It will be very beneficial to you. And then yeah, have it be right. part of their plot to control Geeter or something. Again, we don't know. Another huh moment is the... The preteen Caucasian android boys. <laughs> Did you catch that? Like, yes. it's, impo- it's hard to not notice like, after yeah, seeing it this many times. They're the Futurians minions and the crew of their ship. Um, They're like little Wesley Crushers. Oh, my gosh. Does they this sort of mean, look like it's like does, android Wesley Crusher. Does this mean Kazuki Amori was watching TNG? I would hope so, but that's the only, I cannot make any connection to why there's in there. Uh, it's funny. My mind suddenly went to some very scary West world places when you brought that up. <laughs> yes. I, it, I know that that's what it makes you think. Terrible news making us think all of this stuff. <laughs> I suddenly feel even less sorry for those two guys when they get vaporized. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've gotten past our few whys we'll we'll start with the things that can't be swept under the rug and that that includes especially our our time travel adventures this is the part of the movie that for a long time leading up to this i knew was going to be the part that was going to drive me the craziest and i'd have to work the hardest to not just rant about it but the thing is, the movie doesn't care that much about it. So I want to begin by saying, and I'm speaking as a professional writer, writing time travel is hard. Throwing it out there. I commend Amori for wanting to try it. It's different. And using the time travel to delve into Godzilla's origin story. That's interesting. I will f- say right up front, if I was a studio executive and someone came to me 
with an elevator pitch for a Godzilla movie, and he said, time travel, Godzilla's origin, return of Ghidorah. I would be intrigued. The thing is, those are three things that can be very difficult to piece together and make work. And I'm not saying that Godzilla and time travel can't work. Every comic book company that has published Godzilla comics in the United States, when we're talking Marvel, Dark Horse, and currently IDW, they have all done time travel stories with Godzilla. And those have actually been very effective. I've read the Dark Horse story and I've read the Marvel story. The advantage that they had, though, is they kept the time travel simpler. So there wasn't as many problems that they had to deal with. Because when you're writing time travel, you need to have good plotting and clear rules so that you can avoid plot holes or at least minimize the plot holes. Uh, My go-to example would be Back to the Future. If you scrutinize Back to the Future, you will realize that there are some holes in how the time travel works. But everything around it in the rest of the movie is done so well that you gloss over it. The problem this movie has is that all of its problems are right up there in your face. This isn't the same as, say, the Zillions in Monster Zero. If you scrutinize their plan, there are some things that don't quite make sense about it. But it's done so well that you don't think about it. And I think that's the biggest difference between Omori and Sakazawa. Right, so this can't be swept under the rug, all of these things, because... You, the, it's right out there. It's right in front of you. The first one I want to bring up is it's stated in this film that one of the rules of time travel is that you can't have the same person existing in the same time period. One of them will disappear. Except that doesn't seem to apply to Kaiju because Ghidorah exists in the same time period at the end of the movie, because he comes back as a cyborg, but the corpse is still at the bottom of the ocean. Glossed over that one. However, the thing that has always bugged me the most about this movie, ever since I was a teenager, is the character's goal in this movie, as in many time travel stories, is to alter history. But when they come to the present, nothing has changed, but everyone acts like it has. Everyone is acting like Godzilla doesn't exist anymore, and they need to go send a submarine to make the dinosaur into Godzilla. But there's nobody talking about how the cities he destroyed are no longer destroyed. The people he killed are alive again. None of that. That has bugged me more than anything else in the time travel with this movie. Because it seems like such a basic, easy concept to do. And I think there was a lot of story potential that they missed with that. What I find interesting is that once you introduce a time machine into a story, the time machine becomes the most valuable thing in the universe. Immediately, the objective should have been get control of the time machine in order to change everything back to normal. Do undo all the stuff that the terrorists did. And so then you're able to switch that back, and then you fix your problem. But instead, we don't get that. And then they blow up the time machine, which is the silliest idea of the whole of the whole movie because then you, you've destroyed the golden goose. But that's the scary thing. I wish they had gone into what is actually scary about the concept of time terrorists because the time terrorists, they would, they would do all of their action and then we wouldn't know. Nobody would know. 
I think that's the scary thing is that they could intervene in all this stuff and, and nobody would know. And I know maybe that's harder to put on screen, but I think somehow you need to be able to convey that. Also, there's no need to have any other people with the time terrorists. The, they, they, they choose Mickey Sagusa and our scientist and our author, and then they, they take everybody together to go back to the past and take care of Godzilla. The only reason why these characters need to be together is because they're all in the movie together. Because really the time terrorists could have just done all this stuff on their own and it would have been over. And so that's a, that's one thing. And then we were talking about this earlier about how Emmy lets the Dorats go, even though she wasn't in on the plan to create Ghidorah. Yet the expression that she has and the reaction that she has when Mickey asks her about the Dorats is she's ignoring it. Yes. Which would lead me to believe she's deceiving them because she's part of this plot. And then later... That's what I thought. And then later reacts in horror when she finds out what the other two are doing. So what did they... Why did they tell her they were releasing the Dorats? Like, what was her motivation with... I don't know. I attribute it to poor writing. Right. Well, yeah, of course. But that's that's one of the more glaring things that you notice. That really... It's hard to sweep something like that under the rug. What should have happened was they could have had somebody else releasing the Dorats, and then both Mickey and Emmy are like, where are they? That'd be the way to fix that. And then have somebody else not answer. One last thing for this category is... so. Mickey Segusa's character is a psychic, right? Yes. But she can't read what humans think. Nope. No. So she can she read, can what read animals and think. plants. Animals and plants, even, but not people. Huh. That would have been really useful at this time. And and also, it's a good thing that the, the, apparently in the future, psychics can't read humans either because our time terrorists have no problem with having a psychic around them all the time, possibly finding things out. And they're in the middle of this huge deception. I, I would be really paranoid if I had a psychic around us while they were doing all this, if I was them. But this is not, hmm. they're sure this is applying a little bit of realism to this, that, that even though it's pure fantasy, but at the same time, I think, I think that is kind of funny that this like, Oh, Mickey's really, she, she's not reading anything. Yeah, she doesn't even really use her powers that much. I think she uses no. it once, and it's just a, oh, I know Godzilla is out there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, di- I didn't understand that part either. That was interesting. But even yeah, though she, her, pr- her abilities are really vague. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because at the beginning of this movie, they actually say that she's gone. I think it's supposed to be that she's gone from being part of the Institute to being in charge of that Institute that we had in Bialante. Yeah. So she got a promotion. What was the place called again? The Psychic Exploitation Center. (laughs) (laughs) This is, that doesn't have the same ring to it as the Xavier School for Gifted Children. (laughs) No, it does not. Okay, now let's move into stuff that we did not like. And we're going to just try to get the big categories through. The biggest problem I have is the dubbing. 
It's kind of hilariously bad, though. <laughs> oh, it's it, it is hilariously bad. I like I said, I listen to it. I prefer listening to that track when I watch this movie because it's it makes the movie more entertaining. However, it, it it's cringeworthy. So many, just about every sentence is cringeworthy in some aspect or another. Well, I can tell you why. It's because the dub was done in Hong Kong. It wasn't our usual place that the show series did dubbing, no. No. It in feels fact, like five people did all the voices. Yeah, in fact, I read online that Toho used the same dub studio in Hong Kong for all of the 90s Heisei movies plus 2000. And when TriStar listened to that dub of 2000, they said it was so awful that they were just going to dub it themselves. The one thing I particularly cringe at is Godzilla. I think it's said three times at least. This is not the first movie that that happens in, but that's... That makes it even more glaring. You have no excuse if after 20 years you still can't say the name right. Horrible to listen to. It's painful, actually, I think. I think my favorite is when is when Chuck Wilson says, King Ghidorah. Oh, when he says, kill it, King Ghidorah. Why? Wilson is Al Gore, by the way, everybody. In case you didn't know, that's Al Gore in the bad suit. Numerous bad suits, actually, including a pink one. If I was to ever do a riff track for this movie, which I would love to do, I would love to put in a line where after Grenchico tells one of the heroes off, I want to add, how's that for an inconvenient truth? <laughs> I hate the Dorats. The Dorats are annoying and they uh, they don't look very good. If you put three people on the island, would that just turn into a three-headed human monster? All I keep I keep thinking one of two things. One, they look like terrible gremlin knockoffs. Second, obvious attempt at merchandising. Uh-huh. Because I could easily see those things getting turned into plushies or toys or whatever and marketed to kids. And then the, you could sell them three at a time. Oh, yeah. Brilliant marketing there. I just, I have a hard time. I, I know it's supposed to be ironic, but I have a really hard time believing that those three tiny things turn into a 400-foot golden dragon. It just seemed, it seems like a totally different idea that just got slapped in there. And I think somebody just went, they just like, oh, the Dorats, let's do Dorats. I'm like, I don't know. No, I don't think so. The various effects during the Ghidorah attacks on the cities... I'm not really all that big of a fan of. And it's the part where they, they show the city and then they show Ghidorah and then there's like these explosions happening in the background and and like nothing's happening on the screen, really. There's just projected explosions appearing. It didn't do anything for me. That's actually one of my biggest gripes with this. I mentioned in our Ghidorah 64 episode that his attacks on the city really got to me. There was this Lovecraftian dread and helplessness that I felt when I was watching it. I don't have that here. That awe is just not there. There's no impact. I think maybe they just should have done a shorter sequence and had actual stuff being blown up. I wish I could figure out why Ghidorah's attack on the city in this doesn't have the impact of the original. And I don't know if it's the special effects or if it's the editing or just the attitude 
that it's presented in. The 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 atmosphere is not there. Yeah, the atmosphere. That's the, what it the, is. Is the, the atmosphere the is doom. not there. The doom is not there. Yeah. Yeah, because I just don't feel the same. No. It, it doesn't, and the scene lacks the dynamicness of the original. With that, it was fast and it was violent, and this one, it just seems like there's some explosions. He flies over things and they blow up. Yeah, it's like ah, oh, they'll rebuild. They got it. They'll be okay. And then the other thing that I kind of have a gripe with this movie is in the original movies, it always took more than one monster to defeat Ghidorah because Ghidorah was supposed to be that powerful. He's not in this. In this, he gets beaten just by Godzilla in one fight. And yes, I will admit it was clever to do the thing with decapitating one of the heads. But this Ghidorah seems to be weaker than the other one. It's because this Godzilla is unfriendly. (laughs) I would honestly, considering how much of a pansy this Ghidorah seems to be, I say grab the Showa Ghidorah and sick him on this one. I know this one is supposed to be twice as tall, but I think Showa Ghidorah would eat this one. Yeah, Showa Ghidorah had more of a presence. And I think it, part of it is the editing. I think part of it is the effects. And the, the atmosphere is not established. We, we miss, I miss Akiko Wakabayashi saying, and then King Ghidorah will come. And then looking at everybody's faces and they're like, oh, she just predicted more doom, didn't she? And this is the worst of it. There, there was that. And then the, yeah, it's about presentation. It's just like when somebody brings you food. And, and the the plating's all off. I think this is what we have is they didn't. The plating of of our Ghidorah was not expertly done. And the other problem with Ghidorah is, I don't know what it is. It's a common problem in the Heisei movies. I hate Ghidorah's wings in this movie. They look like plastic. Too flashy or. Shiny. Well, the the worst part is it just looks fakey. The worst part is when Godzilla shoots one of the wings, and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the the membrane and and the pieces of it are like little. Yeah, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be membranes of skin. Uh huh. But they look like plastic. Yeah. It doesn't work. (laughs) But that's a common problem with these Heisei movies. They had trouble with wings. Next, we'll move on to Major Spielberg. That little uh, scene there that was on the naval vessel there. Um, <sighs> I don't. I, don't I, I think it's just. It took me out of the movie. That's for sure. I just think it's dumb. It's just Omori showing off that he likes American movies. We get it. Yeah, because I, I before the advent of the internet, I had wondered if it was completely inaccurate, therefore making it even stupider, but. I did a little bit of research and found out that Steven Spielberg's father, Arnold, did fight in World War II. He enlisted in the Army, not the Navy, and was stationed in India, not the South Pacific. Interesting. And But still unnecessary. Yes. The whole thing is still unnecessary. Yeah. And S- Steven Spielberg himself was not born until 1946, after the war. Maybe because the dubbing is just so bad, just like everything in the dubbing is bad. Maybe that's one reason why I didn't like it, too. It's no better in Japanese. 
I can tell you that. Cause, well, I've seen both. Yeah. It's bad either way. Because those, those characters are always speaking English. It's just that in the Japanese, it's those actors. But in the dub, they dub over them. Because they're bad actors. And then we have Major Spielberg a little bit later. Who tries to have what I guess is supposed to be a clever one-liner. After the battleship bombards the Godzillasaurus. And the best he can come up with is, Take that, you dinosaur. Dialogue is important. One of the more significant gripes that I have about this movie is that it went into the origin of Godzilla in the first place. I don't think it's necessary. I also don't think it was done right in the first place with the, with the way that this is done here. But I just, I don't think it's necessary to even have an origin. Having that as mystery was okay. I don't, I didn't see any real reason to go back, but I generally don't see a real reason to go back to the war either. Honda, when he said that it went too far with uh, the our Godzillasaurus killing the soldiers and everything, even though the they were U.S. soldiers and they were having a good time doing the movie and everything, to some people this didn't look all that great. And and Honda was it was actually one of them. I I agree with Honda with what he had to say about it, and I I just uh, I just don't think the origin was even necessary in the first place. See, I disagree with you on that. I I didn't mind it. If they had never done it, I would have been okay, but I didn't mind that they decided to do it at all. Maybe it's the fact that our Godzillasaurus also, he makes the Rodan noise, and he also makes the Gamera noise. It's actually both of those. Yeah, except he only sounds like Gamera when he's being wounded. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a little bit of a jab from I wonder, Toho. I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> unfortunately this movie made me think of a rather infamous episode of mst3k overdrawn at the memory bank yeah in particular when we see these special effects and hear the sound effects related to the futurian technology like their teleporter and things like that. It does not look like something that would have been even close to state of the art in the early nineties. It looks about 10 to 15 years out of date. And that's why I was thinking of overdrawn at the memory bank. And I was thinking of this scene where there, there's a clip of Casablanca on one of the TV screens. And one of the bots remarks, don't reference a good movie in your bad movie. And my thought was, don't reference a worse movie in your bad movie. (laughs) And that kind of leads us into stuff that we found that was funny in this movie. I think one of the funnier things in this movie is the part, it's at the timestamp is one hour, eight minutes and 39 seconds in. And it's King Ghidorah flies over Mickey Sagusa and she says it's King Ghidorah I was like well they don't call her psychic for nothing do they (laughs) (laughs) one that I one of the first ones I wrote down Emmy mentions that hologram technology has existed since the 21st century I'm still waiting for mine also at the 19 minute 41 second mark did you see Terasawa's lunch? It's Godzilla ramen. 
It was. It looked it looked like a dinosaur, Godzilla-looking dinosaur on the front of it. And he just opens it up and starts eating lunch. I'm like, wow. It's Godzilla ramen. I want Godzilla ramen. This is something I didn't even know. I think I was looking at the ramen too closely. I was like, ah, oh, okay. When our heroes travel back in time and they see Shindo, who's the leader of the of the garrison on Lagos, someone remarks, he's younger. And I said, no, he isn't. <laughs> he looks exactly the same. He hasn't aged in 50 years. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't look all that different. <laughs> You're not going to convince me that this is young Shindo movie. <laughs> Suchia does not look like the controller right now. <laughs> Do I sound like I'm far away when, when I say that? Activate the energy laser cannon. <laughs> That sounds better. Try talking into the microphone <laughs> when you dub your stuff. Oh. <laughs> but it sounds like there's a person off screen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> there's something you'd like to say? Get get in front of the mic. Hmm. Oh, oh, it's supposed to be somebody inside. Ah, <laughs> got it. Got it. Around the 68 minute mark when someone says, we kind of touched on it before about the creation of a Godzilla being faded. In my inner Whovian, or if you don't know what that is, that's a Doctor Who fan said, the the birth of Godzilla is a fixed point in time. That's mm-hmm. a Doctor Who thing. <laughs> also, I think it's kind of funny that the futuristic gun props that our heroes are using at the end look, no joke, they look exactly like the little gun accessories that come with the Trendmasters G-Force figures. Oh, really? And those characters, they, they invented them all themselves, and those characters look a little bit Power Ranger-y. Mm-hmm. And the, I, I have distinct memories of, of the guns that came with it, and they look just like the ones in this. That's pretty Colored funny. differently, but uh, still the same thing. And I have to admit, it was simultaneously cringy and funny to hear Tarasawa quote Dirty Harry. Oh, that yeah, that was a mixed cringe funny. <laughs> I was just like, by the way, Omori likes American movies. Yeah, just in case you didn't right, know. Yeah, because right before they blow up the computers, he says in English, "Go ahead, make my day." Really, movie? You had to quote Sudden Impact. <laughs> About seventy-five minutes in, when M eleven does his little heroic dash to come in and then he jumps on our two villains to save our heroes. I was thinking to myself, Oh, Maury, that was a perfect opportunity for you to use the $6 million man sound. Oh, could you could have thrown that right in. It would have been great. <laughs> if any of you out there can do a fan edit and make that happen, you will be my hero. <laughs> and probably Robert Scott Field's hero too. <laughs> An hour and four minutes and 15 seconds into the movie, we have Godzilla coming out of the water and we have that harp music. <laughs> it's, I was like, what is coming out of the water now? Is it a mermaid? Like a mermaid with a harp's going to come out? It just was rather funny. I'm not really sure exactly what they were going for with that music, but... Uh. This is a, a little bit of a personal story. I remember this one time I was watching this movie with my dad, who's normally very serious guy and we come to that scene when shindo and godzilla have their little stare down and 
right when it cuts to when Godzilla roars, my I remember my dad saying, I remember, you will live. And then Godzilla blasts yeah. him. And then he adds, or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think my dad was a little surprised. Yeah, they really did go for the savage Godzilla who is completely unforgiving in the end. Also, Emmy forgot to install one very important thing in Mecha Ghidorah that she figured out the hard way. Seatbelts. Yeah, really she falls right out of her chair. She gets thrown around all over the place in the cockpit. It's like, come on, seatbelts. Do you not have seatbelts in the future? Well, that leads into the fact that she, her her tenure as the controller of Mecha King Ghidorah lasts a, t- a total of about four minutes. And then she it's a spectacular, disastrous failure. And it's almost like when Deanna Troy got to pilot the Enterprise for five minutes and then crashed it. <laughs> also, I think it's a good thing, even though this might have been something that they may have toyed with at one point when you do a story like this. It's a good thing that Terasawa and Emmy didn't fall in love with each other because... She says, oh, by the way, I'm one of your descendants. I'm like, oh, good. You you may have become your own grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been like a Game of Thrones kind of plot then at that point. (laughs) Or uh, that episode of Futurama (laughs) where Fry becomes his own grandfather. Oh, yeah. It's interesting how some of these are just cringeworthy slash funny kind of things. And I think that's what we end up having a lot in these Heisei movies as we continue on. But there are there are some genuinely funny things going on with this too. Well, I think that does it for part two. Let's move on to our related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we talk about issues that were either brought up by the film or were going on at the time that the film was released. And this is a case where it's both because uh, this movie extensively covers the topic of uh, Japanese nationalism and the Japanese national spirit, and so we uh, will uh, sort of delve into uh, this topic. What was going on in Japan and the world at this time was a really, really unique situation, because at this time, the Cold War was ending, and by 1992, the Soviet Union no longer existed. Japan and the world were going through a very odd time in history at this point because of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and also the incredible amount of economic power that Japan had at that time as it was in the middle of the asset bubble. And so the stock market was going through the roof at that time, and it looked as if Japan was on the verge of becoming a world superpower because of of its economic might. In 1989, which was already at quite a high point in the asset bubble, the Nikkei 225 average was at about 28,000. But in 1990, at the peak, the Nikkei 225 was above 38,000 points. And so this bubble was really gigantic. And I think it gave, it was one of the things that gave Japan the impression that this was just going to keep on going. It was going to continue forever and that Japan would just keep building more and building more. And it's an interesting point when you're, when people go through this, whether it's individually or whether it's a nation, 
it's like when you're at the casino and you are on this massive winning streak. And it's that moment where you think, this is just going to go forever. Only it doesn't. Because it never does. And so then you start losing. And then you lose more and lose more, thinking that you're going to start winning again. But it's that euphoria. It's that atmosphere of endless success. And it's just like here in the United States when we thought the Dow Industrial Average is just going to keep going and going and going forever. In Japan, it was a lot worse. And when the collapse did occur, uh, when the bubble did burst, it really hit hard. By the time this movie had released, it was back down to about 22,000. And so the, the air, a lot of the air had been knocked out of the bubble by that point. And so that's what Japan was going through as this movie was being made and the stock market was still losing big time and would be losing for at least a couple more years after this movie was released. And so it's a, it makes sense that since this is the thing that's on everybody's minds, that this would become the subject of this movie. There was also a lot of tension going on between the United States and Japan in the area of trade and market penetration. This was at a point where the Japanese were selling massive, massive amounts of goods to the United States, and the trade deficit between the U.S. and Japan was very high in favor of Japan. We mentioned in the last episode that at one point, the United States labeled Japan an unfair trading partner with respect to a number of different industries. And this actually uh, got worse before it got better. The thing that actually did fix this, though, was the World Trade Organization and its ability to help with bilateral trade agreements because it isn't so of a rocky relationship when a disagreement occurs. But between then and the point that this movie was made, though, there was quite a lot of attention. There, were, there was a lot of talk with average people, actually, in America where they were upset about Japanese products being everywhere. They were upset with the fact that they thought Americans should be making these products, and they didn't want to participate in this kind of imbalanced trade situation. There was a lot of backlash from people in the United States about Japanese products. This got worse when the Japanese companies decided to buy Rockefeller Center as well as the American movie studio Columbia Pictures, which Columbia eventually became part of Sony. But this was, uh, this was a big deal. There was a lot of the media, I don't think the media helped either. I think they probably helped to stoke more of this tension. So there was this environment that was being created uh, in the media and just by people back and forth here about the Japanese are buying up everything. They're going to buy up our country and they're, uh, they're going to use the companies they buy for nefarious purposes. There's uh, quite a bit of paranoia going on at the time. Some were calling this the Sony shock and the Japanese invasion and that the, it was a purchase of a piece of America's soul. Some even questioned if Sony would make Columbia Pictures create pro-Japanese propaganda. Newsweek published a poll that said Americans saw Japan's economic power as a greater threat than the Soviet Union. That blew my mind when I read that. I mean, I understand this is as the Cold War is coming to an end, but still, it's crazy. And some argue this 
outrage was motivated by racism since Australian, Canadian, and European interests had purchased American movie studios before this. One contemporary comparison would be Alibaba's purchase of Legendary Pictures, which that's another movie studio in the United States. Which is certainly relevant to listeners of this podcast because Legendary is the, is the studio producing Pacific Rim and the new American Godzilla movies. So we have an environment where I think some of the nativism and some of the nativist attitudes of people got triggered. What happened was it was, uh, I don't know if, if, if all of it was racial. I think a lot of it was just wanting to have goods made in your own country. The jobs thing more than I think a racial component to it. But it was definitely, there was a lot of tension being stoked and it was a very relevant time. And it's a time where at this point in Japan, they probably thought that their economy was going to be doing great for years to come, and they didn't really see the end of that coming down the tunnel. But unfortunately, it was extremely close to happening. And then when it did, that was when this movie was being made and released, and that was when all the air started going out of the bubble, and then reality started to set in. But this movie deals so well with all of these concerns and all the stuff that was going through people's head at the time. And it really was able to express some of the attitudes that people were thinking about, about where they saw their country in the future. A lot of this ends up being ironic because of just how the movie says, Oh, they were buying up whole nations and everything. And this was, this was just when the, when the lost decade was starting eventually because of Japan's, economy rivaling that of the United States, some people in Japan started thinking that Japan was going to become such a big world power that they wouldn't need the United States anymore, and they wouldn't need the security treaty anymore. The idea of Japan being able to completely defend itself and be able to buy a large military because of how successful its economy is doing. And so there's this whole... Yeah, you beat us in the war, but we're back now, we're stronger than ever, and we are going to be just as big as you all are. There's that level of euphoria about Japan's state at that point in time that that, that started happening. And it's, I think it's hard for us to believe that now, just because Japan isn't going... Their, their debt is so massive, their debt-to-GDP ratio, they're not going to just buy a superpower's worth of cruise missiles and a defensive nuclear force and aircraft carriers all over the place, this kind of thing, that it seems really hard to believe that, that that would happen now. And all of this sentiment that's being expressed in the United States at this time, you can see in the characters of Wilson and Grenchico. And as we've pointed out, Several times, this movie is full of unsubtle symbolism, and that's what these characters are. They are... Now, mind you, it's being couched in that they're, they're villains, they're terrorists, but they are expressing those sorts of sentiments. They don't like that Japan has become this superpower and has knocked them down from being top dog in the world. Yeah, they represent the resentment that other countries in the world felt in, in this future world. And so they decide that Japan needs to be taken down to size. No matter who is the leading power in the world, once you become that leading power in the world, 
you're that one that everybody's going to be trying to take down to size. So I think that's how it works in the international relations field, no matter what. But I think Japan wanted to become this big of a power and have, I guess, the luxury of being the one that everybody wants to take out. And at the same time, I think considering the two continents that they say Japan is buying up, it, it implies that, that Japan is buying up poorer nations. Mm-hmm. Sounds like so it. So it's almost like a predatory practice of getting countries that collapsed or countries that have a lot of poor people in them and then a rich country comes in and then vultures it up and turns it into who knows what in order to make it profitable. Is like, is that what we're talking about? Cause it, it sort of implied that, that whole nations could just be bought and sold in yeah. the future. And that Japan was winning all of these auctions, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit scary, but when you put it like that, Brian, it almost makes Wilson and Grenchico sympathetic in a way um, you, well, yeah, that their fears might mine. be, might be in some way legitimate. Yeah. Even though that's not my, purpose but at the same time there's a lot going on with how this movie says that japan is overbearing with its prosperity and that they're being vain and that they actually should be worried when they aren't because that's actually a point that is actually made in the movie where they say this the man in the museum he says you all think we're prosperous and that there's going to be peace but you're wrong. You're not as safe as you think you are. That's the sentiment that he expresses. And I think that might be, if this movie has a theme, maybe that's one of one of the mini theme or a pseudo theme that the movie is able to catch on to. Because they should be worried at that point in time. Because their, their stock market's collapsing, the bubble burst, and now they are beginning a lost decade that they have to get out of, which that involves... Stuff that the United stuff like the United States had to do an economic stimulus package, tax increases, uh, th- those kinds of measures. I wonder then if the character of Shindo, in some ways, represents a Japanese people coming to grips with the notion that this isn't going to last forever. Because that's that's part of Shindo's arc is he's proud of the prosperity that he's helped to bring about. But then at the end, he's confronted with the fact that it's all disappearing. And the movie even has sort of an ambivalent attitude about all this prosperity being destroyed. It's like, it's, it's almost a little bit cynical or maybe even a little nihilistic. This movie is underestimated in how it can be related back to the original Godzilla from 1954 in that, this movie may have been also a psychological repair job for people in Japan who were going through the fact that everything seems to be collapsing and this dream of being able to be more self-sufficient is seems to be crashing down on us right now because by the time this movie was released, people were going through that. Absolutely. And they, they saw the bubble bursting and they, they saw this potential dream of a, a more Japan dominated future world. It seems to be collapsing. And I would sort of wonder if this movie, just like Godzilla 1954, that was a psychological repair process for the war and especially for the atomic bomb. 
I'm wondering if this is that same function only for people who are feeling anxiety about the economy and the state of Japan exactly in that year. All of this tension and controversy actually is connected to the film. Well before this movie was released in the United States, there were American news outlets like CNN that heard about the World War II sequences in this where the Godzillasaurus kills American soldiers and started showing those clips on TV saying that these scenes were anti-American. Along with that, members of the Pearl Harbor Survivors Association were angered by what they uh, by these scenes, and it's understandable why they would be. They stated that it was in very poor taste. If you are in their position, then I, I think that's probably what would happen. But at the same time, also Honda, sure Honda himself was not very happy with that scene either. He said that it just wasn't that again that it wasn't in very good taste. It should be stated that Omori himself loves America. So it was not meant to be anti-American, but the optics are bad. Yeah, a scene like this just just appears badly, especially for somebody who isn't familiar with the Godzilla series or familiar with how Omori was playing around with, with all the stuff going on in the news at the time. And, and yes, he did say in an interview that the U.S. soldiers were happy to be performing the roles that they did, and they had a lot of fun getting squished by Godzilla and all that. Yeah, because he actually, these aren't just extras, they were actual American soldiers stationed in Japan that he had in the movie. Yes, and, and they did not think anything of it, is the point. And Omori is telling, he actually had to go through an interview with Pearl Harbor Survivors Association, and he said that that's not what he meant, and that he he didn't mean to be pressing anybody's buttons, and in, instead he he was able to explain that, and it's a good thing that he did. It's just that when you're showing a movie and you're having that kind of a thing in a movie like this, your intentions should be crystal clear, and and instead you shouldn't have to deal with somebody later on where they say what is what's going on in this? This is what do you mean? You you should be able to say what you mean if you're doing it right that was the problem there was that the the like you said the optics of it just weren't all that great and at, at the time too when there was this much tension going on it's probably the wrong time to be going that far that's what honda said specifically was that it was it, it went a bit too far i will tell you that i read about all of this before i ever saw the movie and then when i finally did watch the movie I never felt like it was anti-American I at all. I took it at face value. Maybe I'm naive, but in my head, I was thinking, you know, if this had been an American movie, think it might, the same thing might have happened in reverse, and nobody would have thought much of it. So it, it didn't bother me at all. I don't know about you, Brian. It didn't with me because I knew the context. But if I did not know the context, I might have been a little upset with it. If you sit this kind of a movie down that's so different in front of somebody, because they see that happening on the screen, they're going to think that the movie endorsed it. There's just You're just running that risk. I, there's nothing that you can do in post-production to fix that. You can't put a subtitle on the screen that says, the director loves America, don't worry, folks. It, it's just out there, and there's nothing you can do about it except hope that it doesn't get taken the wrong way. 
you don't want to be in, you don't put yourself in that situation because you painted yourself into a corner and say, well, I hope nobody takes this the wrong way. I was like, well, you need to do more than hope. You need to, you need to be clear about all of these, um, forces of play that you're messing around with and throwing in a blender and, and creating this national psyche milkshake that everybody drinks down. And you just want to make sure that they know what they're drinking. One of the seminal objects of work that is, uh, really an expression of Japan at, at that very second in time would be the Japan that can say no, which was an essay and it was made by Shintaro Ishihara and Akio Morita. Uh, Ishihara was an LDP figure and he would go on to become governor of Tokyo for 13 years. And Akio Morita was the then co-founder of Sony and Morita talked more about business and corporate climates and uh, the difference between corporate cultures in the United States and Japan. And Ishihara, he concentrated more on the political, political more, side of things, more yeah. cultural yeah. end of things. Yeah. We want to our listeners to understand that Morita and Ishihara don't necessarily agree on everything because they this book is made up of essays that they each take turns writing. Ishihara engages in a lot of cultural imperialism while also criticizing what he sees as American cultural imperialism. And since the publication of this book, Morita has distanced himself from it. And I think that's in large part because reality changed. Yeah, reality is now a lot different than it was in 1990. Things have, have changed greatly. And the the idea of Japan becoming the next world's great superpower. The idea of that died quite a while ago, considering where we are now. Once you're out of, it's almost like it's an ideological bubble was going on <laughs> at the same time. There was an asset bubble going on in that. The, Lots of bubbles. Yeah. The, there was a psychological effect of the bubble economy and it was turning into a, a sort of political bubble in, in which the, this idea that Japan would go on to become such a controlling force in the world, that idea died when the bubble died. The, the important thing that I, after reading this and researching on it, the thing that I came away with was, it's funny for one nation to say, you believe in your own superiority, so it will be your downfall. But at the same time, you're doing that yourself you're telling other people your belief that you're superior is will be your downfall at the same time you are engaging in your own talk of how you yourself are superior this is why when one nationalism goes up against another nationalism nobody wins it because you just butt heads because it's the same thing on both sides and, and often it just ends up being, oh, well, I guess we, we should have done that because it's just two bulls locking horns and then nothing comes out of it except just animosity. And, and the animosity doesn't even – nobody even gets anything out of it. This was a lot of it was a, a backlash against perceived cultural imperialism from the United States. The United States getting too much influence, too much power, and now because Japan's economic power is so high – it's the idea of we need to we need to assert ourselves more. We need to say no. We need to be more independent. Only it's going at it from a different way than I think it is now, like in Shin Godzilla, for instance. But yeah, th this is it's more a resentment. 
I think. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's anger. Yeah, it's it's more angry. It's uh, it's not as positive. It's I, some of it started reminding me of Francis Fukuyama, because like Francis Fukuyama, he talked about trust societies and about how Japan is a block of granite while China is a pile of sand. And, hmm. uh, so, and, and he was making all these analogies, but the, it's, it's sort of like a cultural argument for why Japan was so cohesive and how the cohesion is a strength for the Japanese. And so it was, it was getting cultural things and turning them into political things. Yeah. A lot of what Fukuyama did. And, mm-hmm. and, but like this, the idea of Japanese business culture supremacy and the idea of, uh, the Japanese character being superior, which when you start talking about characters of nations, you're starting to get vague, but because Japan is often considered a, an ethnically homogenous country mm-hmm. th- that then it becomes, Oh, well that that's why. And, and you get to make that easy explanation that I don't know if you're really a hundred percent solid ground on, on solid ground about. Yeah. And it should be noted that having a country that is ethnically homogenous is a very rare thing. So it's a lot different than what I think most people are used to. I feel like for Morita, a lot of it is coming. What he was writing about was coming from his own personal experience, dealing with American business, dealing with American businessmen yeah. all the time. Keep in mind, this is when Sony was making these big buyouts and everything, so he's witnessing these things firsthand. Yes, he knows the business culture. So he can talk about the differences and what makes the Japanese better. And being a Japanese man, saying this is why the Japanese way is better. For the most part, I don't have a whole lot of trouble with what Morita himself is saying. You can see how he concludes them more easily than it seems a bit more abstract with the stuff that Morita didn't write. Mm-hmm. He His conclusions about there's too much M&A in American corporate culture. There are quite a bit of Americans that would actually say, yeah, we, we do a lot of M&A compared to Japan. And then also there, there's uh, his point about high CEO pay. That's something people have been complaining about in America for years. And it's not going to be – I don't think it's going to be changing anytime soon. It's just something that is innate in American corporate practice. And so when you're meeting businessmen from another country a lot, you're going to notice this. You're going to notice, oh, you know, you're a little bit weak on this or that or the other. And, and, the, and they'll point that out, which any country can do that to any other country. And can say, well, the United States can say, oh, well, the German business environment is really cooperative with the government. And they, it's a lot of state-directed stuff that a lot of other countries don't have either because they consider it a bad idea or because they are jealous because they consider it a luxury. But you can go country to country to country and you can say, you have too much of this, you have too little of that, we're better at this than you, we're better in that than you. All right, yeah. You're, you're, it's all within a corporate context and not as much as within a cultural or political context. He, he's a bit more restrictive with the points that he make that he makes. There's, there's like a fence and, and but Ishihara jumps the fence multiple times, and he tries to uh, make some very uh, interesting leaps, leaps of logic. 
the copy of this book that I found online had an introduction that mentioned that, interestingly, this book is commonly read by members of the U.S. Congress, probably so they can get an idea of how Japanese business views the United States. Although I do think a lot of the information in this book is probably well out of date by this point. But it's still an interesting window into the Japanese psyche at the time. However, I, this book, and I, in my opinion, largely due to what Ishihara writes, has been ranked by Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the 10 worst books ever written about international relations. And these books that it's included with are books that say, oh, the future will be extremely peaceful forever because people will logically figure that out. And, and like there's another book that said that eventually all nation states will become obsolete. Like it's, it, it's almost like if they included legislation or treaties on this list, the Kellogg-Briand Pact would, would top that list. It's just books that were unrealistic. I think is the point that we're trying to drive here is that, is that this book was written at a point in time where it looked like everything was going to go perfect forever. And this is not one of those times. Rarely ever is. At this point in time in 1991, that is when the U.S. and Japan trade deficit peaked. And it was also at a point where the trade agreements were at the most friction. And later on, as we said, the WTO and other forms of negotiation helpers for trade agreements comes in and the personal headbutting back and forth between Japan and the United States ended up not being so bad. We were able to work past those things. And then the tensions that existed at the time with the whole, the whole Japanese are going to buy everything. This, this concern abated and people were able to concentrate on other things. It's funny that this argument of the Japan that can say no, it's funny that that, that book came out when it did because the Japanese economy in 1990 grew 5.57%. In 1991, when this movie came out, economic growth was 3.32%. And then after that, we enter the lost decade. And it's at that point that the thesis for the Japan that can say no really collapses for the most part. In 1992, growth was 0.81%. In 93, 0.17%. And then uh, we get 1.94% in 95, a little bit of uh, more steam in the later 90s, but once the Asian economic crisis of 97 hit, things went back down again. Their economy was just starting to cool down and come back to normal right when this series of essays was released. As soon as this came out, everything came collapsing back down. One reason why this movie does quite well in the ratings compared to other movies in the franchise is because this movie does do a good job at playing around with all of these ideas. It's full of interesting concepts and it juggles around a lot of intriguing things. If we if there wasn't that part of that to this movie, I think this movie would be boring. If it weren't, if it wasn't messing around with all this, even though it does it in a uns, isn't in an unsubtle kind of 
blunt instrument way. But it still does. It still does it. Actually, to be honest, Brian, uh, I think I find myself appreciating this one a little bit more now at the end of this podcast than at the beginning of it. I think we can understand why a lot of people like it. I think it's one of the most memorable movies I've ever seen in my life. There's, I don't think there are many movies that are like this. This no. isn't even really like some of the other movies in the Heisei series. I mean, t- no. technically it is, but with, story-wise, there's just so much going on that I don't know if I don't know if any of the other movies in the Heisei series are this intriguing as far as just idea-wise, just because there's so much going on. That wraps things up for this episode. Next time on Kaiju Vision Radio, Mothra returns. And we get really environmentalist this time around. Yep, in Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth. See you next time. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!